So I just want to uh, point to something that we're quiet together. And if the quiet isn't a noisy waiting for me to speak, then there can be a true moment of pause here where you're not waiting. Right? Feel it? See, the waiting is a noise, right? But if we're just... Suddenly the whole thing opens. Waiting is a linear relationship. You know, nothing's happening until I... But when you're just quiet, without the waiting, it's, it's expansive, it's broad, it's big. Is it narrow? So we're looking for something big. So tonight, uh, in that line of thought, I'm going to kind of a Cecil B. DeMille's wide, broad sweep, kind of the birth of the nation kind of talk. (laughs) Cover A to Z and back again, right? So it's going to be panoramic. And uh, I do this, um, I'll lose some of you. Uh, and I'll lose some of you sometimes and some of you all the times, but not all of you all the time. <laughs> and so that uh, what I hoped for you, those of you who feel too much, you know, I don't even know what he's talking about, then that's fine. You just sit back and just take it in. Don't feel like discouraged. Don't do that. Don't just, just take it in. I'm not saying anything that isn't known uh, and if it calls forth a particular uh, interest, just, oh, what's he talking about? That's interesting. Then that's an area that can be discovered and realized. <clears throat> the whole thing is, is a topic for realization. Uh, but I want to give a sense of where the dhar- what the Dharma looks like when it's painted like as a, a mural. And then we can fill in the pieces after that. But we have lost our way, or many of us have lost our way in, in the specifics, in the intricacies of how we work, that we have forgotten the mural, the big painting of what this is all about. Uh, and so some of you will be able to follow me right along, which is beautiful to see. But what I don't want any of you to feel is uh, that you that I'm somehow judging your practice because this is not how you're practicing. In fact, my hope is that I'm taking all of you off just a little bit out off of dead center so that you have to kind of what, what, use my words to reorganize your perceptions. And anytime you do that, you come, you incl- you're much more inclusive in your perceptions than the fixed way or the patterned way that we've been seeing. So there's value to it. I don't know if that made any sense, but okay. So we are born into a world of forms, aren't we not? Of objects. And if you've witnessed young children who are newly hatched, they are, uh, they have a sense of formlessness about them. They haven't defined, there's no definition in their consciousness. It's much more like a swimming. Uh, and they can't exist without forming, forming themselves and forming their relationship to life. And so it, it's our job as parents, significant people, to 
help that formation process, for them to learn functionally what the world is and be able to navigate their way through it. So it's not, uh, it's not a problem for them to do that. It's a necessity for all of us to have a functional relationship to the world. But what happens within that educational process, within that, is that we begin to see only the forms of the world. We're no longer swimming, right? And the forms of the world look around, and you'll see pretty much what you have learned to see. In fact, you'll only see what you have learned to see. And you'll see, you know, distinctive objects, very much imprinted with our history, with what we have known about those objects. If not that specific object, then similar objects. And so there's a, there's a way that when we look around the world from our sense of education and knowing that everything is very specific in what it is and its meaning to us. And it's from those world of objects that we gain our sense of meaning and purpose. We get a, gain a sense of mastery. And through our relationship of history with those objects and with other formed objects called you or me, we gain our sense of self-image, our sense of, of competency and evaluation, and, and basically the sense of self itself comes through all of that history. And that's pretty much what the world looks like for many of us. <clears throat> now, it's from that sense of formedness that we begin to feel a little limitation. It doesn't give us, uh, it's, it's like, you know, living with rocks. There's an edge to them. And there's rubbing. It's like being on a billiard table with seven billion billiard balls. You rub into those things when you try, when you want what you want, and they want what they want, and everybody has an individuated direction within all of those billiard balls. They crash into each other. And so that much of the life that we live as human beings, as a species, is having the scars of being crashed into by other other members of our species or other objects. And that begins to make us sense that maybe there's a limitation on this way of being. We were taught this, we were educated, and in a minute I'll talk a little more about how deeply embedded genetically these, this disposition of seeing form is. But it, um, it definitely has its limitation. In Buddhism, they call that suffering, struggle. And uh, it's because of the way we are seeing, how we perceive. Because when I perceive you, there has to be a me that perceives you distant from me. So when I call into perception, objects, then there is the knower of those objects that also arises simultaneously and, uh, with the knowledge of those objects. Those two are like two sides of a tent. They arise together, they're dependent upon one another. And that's a very isolating position. I know you have all, we've all felt that sense of isolation of being the knower, being the person inside, looking out, 
distantly in separation in, in our aloneness upon the world of other objects. And only being able to get this close, because this is as close as two objects can get, they can get to a rub, right? That's as close as you can get. You can't get to a melting, but you can get to a rub. And so rubbing or having an experience of another object is the very best that an object can obtain. A good experience. That's a rub. It's life, right? It's life rubbing up against us in a certain pleasurable, hopefully, way. Sometimes unpleasant, but... And so the, the sense of isolation, the sense of being cut off, the sense of separation, the sense of aloneness and loneliness that comes with that, and, and then the sense of burdensome history that all of our lives contain as we just march ourselves through time, through the decades of our growth, and the accumulated experience and the uh, unforgiveness that we hold and the regrets that have piled up and, and all of the scar tissue of our past it doesn't seem to ever be released completely. It's kind of a part of the whole packaging of how we hold ourselves in any particular time. The complete packaging is the summation of all of that that uh, somehow maintains its own uh, trail within our history, within our presence, presence, the history of us. And so as our history becomes burdensome, so does the, it's kind of like a, a Marley, right? Carrying the chains of his forged past in the Scrooge uh, story. <clears throat> probably missed that one, probably there's another ghost, but you get the gist. And, uh, and so uh, that, that's the disposition. That's, the, that's why we long for something. We, but we come in, we don't know what we long for. And many of us uh, long for uh, a beautification of this object, some way to shine it so that, I don't know, that we can be more, so it will be more appealing to us when we look in the mirror or when we compare ourselves. It will have some shine instead of the instead of the diminished scarring that we have seen. And, and so we spend a lot of time trying to beautify this, trying to make it pretty, trying to self-betterment. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and just, um, you know, I'm not trying to discourage self-improvement. I'm, I'm, what I want to do is show you the Buddha's teaching. And the Buddha's teaching doesn't really a rest on self-improvement. That's very needed uh, at some point, as I've already mentioned, that uh, a, a sense of appreciation of self gives you the foundation on which you can move and understand yourself, what you're beautifying. But if you have an aversive sense of yourself, you're never going to want to understand it and never will be able to understand it because the aversion itself will keep you pinned in to the self in a kind of contracted way. <clears throat> and so part of this is a necessary foundation for us to be able to move into the spiritual. And uh, it needs is necessary work for many of us to do. But it should be seen as preparation, really, uh, not the really the, uh, the central issue of what 
the teaching is about. And uh, what I want to do tonight is really uh, not spend so much time on self-improvement, but to move into really where the teaching is ultimately pointing. But I don't want to discourage that either. Mindfulness these days is a, uh, is a canopy, is a tent for uh, therapeutic intervention and for self-improvement. It's really a, a large tent where a lot of different people can come into. But when you come on retreat as in a Buddhist tradition uh, and uh, the, you have teachers who are not brought up as being able to really use uh, mindfulness as a therapy, we're not therapists, Narayan and I, then uh, where, where we're pointing is slightly different than where you might want to be headed having come here for the week. And again, it's not to discourage why you've come, but just to show you a broader reason for coming. Now, what happens when we are so identified within our formation of me is that you start missing something. Have you noticed that there's something that just isn't, that feels missing? Uh, And we can't really put our finger on it, but uh, it's true that every culture in the world, and this was actually about 50 years ago I heard this, so it was true to the, probably the most primitive cultures as well, has the spiritual component within it. Now, if every culture, not just a few, have a spiritual component within the culture, then there must be something, some, there, that must provide some sense within this object formation of, of a of an orientation that the object itself does not allow, right? Some sense of something else, some other possibility. In fact, uh, many years ago, I saw a New York Times uh, poll that showed that 50% of the population have had what they termed mystical experiences. And a mystical experience, by definition, was a sense of God or sense of something greater than themselves being held within that. But the statistic that's much more interesting than that is that 80% of the 50% who had had that experience never wanted it again. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because it shook the, it shook the apple cart. You know, it, it, uh, it really created a breakdown in terms of the system approach to their life, to our lives. Because when you're an object, and this is an important point, there's a whole system related to being an object, a whole uh, justification, a whole strategy, a whole logic to it that has all come into being through the propagation, through the continual belief and assumption of me here and you there. That is formed from a, a whole strategy. Laws are formed. Laws are formed. So what laws are formed? How about the law of death? You know, I die because, from my individuation. I die only as an individual. And if I'm going to believe myself into that, if I'm going to in, uh, infuse belief into my, that fact that I am an individual, then I will come under the law of death. 
right? Okay. So that's just part of what happens. You put, there's an assumption of loss. The law of time. When there's distance between you and me, then there is distance and there is time needed to uh, overcome that distance. And so we think in terms of distance and time because we have organized our perception to believe that things are outside of us. And for, to compensate for that, we have to compensate by thinking in terms of separation. So all of that has led to a very isolated existence. Now, if that is the truth, then let's just get on with it. Be the best billiard ball we can be. <laughs> okay. If it is not the truth, and I stand here, I sit here, as does Narayan, and we tell you from our own experience that that is not the truth, that it is a misperception of reality, then we are, it, what's incumbent upon us is to change that perception so that we can align ourselves with the truth of what reality really is. So, but before I go too far into that, I want to just explore billiard ballness a little further. When we are billiard balls, thinking of ourselves as isolation to the formless, see the formless is always here, it's just not accessible from being or thinking in terms of billiard balls and thinking in terms of separation. So what we have to do in order to have some proximity to the sense of the sacred, which we sense, but we don't know how to, and we keep trying to find it in other forms and other objects. And so we create symbols of the sacred or a cross, those are symbols that remind us that the sacred is accessible, but they themselves are objects. They're not, they, don't, they aren't living representations of the formless. They are forms that somehow point symbolically to the sacred. And we still don't have any access to the sacred, so we end up trying to get there through various means, various locomotives, locomotive ways of doing it. Maybe I'll pray, maybe I'll you know, do all kinds of ways to traverse the distance between ourselves being an object and the sense of the sacred that we sense but have no access to. Because a, a form, when it's infused as form, when it's believed in as me, is another way of saying that, has no relationship at all except a t very tangential one to the formless, to the sacred. And words like formless may, let me, so you, let me use other words like presence, awareness, consciousness. Okay, so presence. I love the word presence. Uh, it's a word that makes it feel so available, right? So close at hand. And so we can... in our off moments, in our moments when we let down our guard, when we let down the shape of our thinking, the logic of our predicament, when we just miss it for a moment, when we just relax it for a moment, something else comes in and catches us and suddenly we become part of that 50% that's had some kind of, we don't know how we got there, but we sure want it back because there's distance between me and that thing and I've got to cover that distance, don't I? 
I got to make up for the fact that it's there and it came and what were the conditions because the conditions are how objects think. It thinks let's set up the right environment for this thing to happen again and then I can have it happen again and then if I have it happen often enough I will be an existing billiard ball with an ongoing relationship to the sacred. And many of us think like that. Many of us are very happy thinking about that. We'll be meditators and I'll, I'll remain as I am and I'll have somehow be able to bring or encourage the sacred near me. And I'll do it through my efforts. I'll do it through form formation, which means I will acquire certain states of mind, which are forms around the form. You see? Just, just listen to it. Listen to the madness of it. And these states of mind that I can encrust myself in will somehow give me access to something that is formless. And the form never can give you access to the formless because it requires something completely different than form formation to do that. So the spiritual journey is the journey from form to formless. That's a spiritual journey, people. It is not the journey in its absolute sense of the beautification of form. Or the cultivation of form or the enhancement of form. No matter how pretty, no matter how cultivated, no matter how enhanced form is, it is still form and cannot touch the formless. Separate, distant. And much of Buddhism is meant to show us that fact. It invests an awful lot of text into showing us discouraging investing in form. It says it's impermanent, it's temporary, it ends by in death. Don't invest in it. Be careful. Whatever you invest in only has a lasting reference in your life, of a temporary reference in your life. It's not worth the much of Buddhism is to counteract our tendency to assert and to invest in form formation. But the Buddha's not looking when I close my eyes. I'm in there alone. And I can check, I can do anything I want to in there. And I kind of like those states of mind that I have acquired. And I sort of like floating in this. And and even though the way we divest ourselves from form is by finding the way that we keep ourselves attached to form. And so the Buddha calls on us to work with the difficult, where that edge, where that friction is between what I'm doing to this form by the narrative I offer and invest in it. What I'm saying about it, basically.
But we're so scared of the, of the possibility of being quiet, you see. We're, it, that's not... Don't ask me to... Send me anywhere but into quietude. Now let me gently, gently show why that is true. Because as long as we're noisy, we're form-producing. We can keep the link between ourselves and form formation, and we can use thought, which thought is formation. It's the first expression of how we tie something, make it distinct and separate by the words and language we use. Starts out as a thought. What's a thought? What is a thought? How does all of this knowledge, all of these things that I see, how, does, how do they come to pass from a thought, which is nothing, but the world seems so sh- solid, it seems so real, but a thought doesn't seem real at all, and yet the world of objects becomes its own entity through thought. You see? So that's, that's the... When you look at the causation of why the world looks the way it is, it's because we've invested it with our history. We've invested it with our thinking. But when you look at what we've invested to make the world what it is, what you come up with is a... And what begins to show us that fact is being quiet. As we get quieter, formation is not so distinct. It's not so, it's not so clearly what it, I have said it to be in the past. It starts losing its edge of definition as we get quiet, because it requires us to constantly know what it is in order for it to hold its form. And when I get quiet, the edge comes off of that form. But here's the reason. If it were just the outside world, well, you know, so be it. I'll just be quiet and watch everything dissolve. The problem is, when we're quiet, we dissolve along with it. And God forbid that. So we keep ourselves noisy. We keep ourselves formed by telling ourselves what we are in relationship to what we see. Our relationship to it, I want it, I don't want it, all of that noise expresses itself in terms of someone who wants or doesn't the object of its choice. Now, this is the fact. This is the fact. This is the disposition of things. It's up to you whether you want to correct it or not but I need to show it to you so that you will have a clear understanding of how the world and myself arise together. And you'll have a clear understanding that the sacred, 
which can be accessed through stillness and quietude, may or may not be what I want, but at least I know how to go there if I do. And I'm not going to fill my journey with a bunch of noise in order to get there, because noise will never take us there. This requires something else from us. It requires the courage to abide in union. Not as an idea or philosophy. That's very good, but it's just more noise around the formation of me. Now I know how to get there philosophically. I know what to do. I know all the whole thing, but by God, I'm not doing it. Now let me just show you, if I could, how invested we are in form historically. This is not just the learning of a child. This has literally millions of years of investment in it. 3.8 billion years ago, life began on this planet once in some pool, some lagoon, once. Now, how do scientists know that? I think that's the most amazing scientific fact I've ever heard. And scientists know that because every expression of vegetable and animal life has a common genetic heritage. Grass has 50% of the genetics of a human being. So they can trace back every vegetable and every animal to a single beginning. Now what happened was everything was together in that time, once upon a time. Everything was together. And then through adaptation that single cell divided out, adapted to its surrounding as it moved into other pools and had other stressors related to its formation and changed and adapted to its circumstances and it became grass and it became bacteria and it became us. But from that simple beginning, we were all together at one point. Form was not what was the common thread. Formlessness was the common thread. There was only one expression of form. But as it divided out and adapted, each adaptation became uniquely unique in its appearance. And so the investment, 3.8 billion years ago, all the way up to now, has been on the appearance of the adaptation. And what we have had in common has long since been lost. Even though it is consistently here, Equally with a blade of grass, it is it is with us. We have refused to look in that direction because our survival as an adaptive species has particularly been imparted by us focusing on our appearance and what we need to do in relationship to our own adaptation. Now I want to bring us up to about two million years ago. What happened around that time 
is that our species went from being basically living in trees in the forest to walking out on the plains of Africa. And as a species, we were very poorly adapted to living out on the plains of Africa. And I suppose droughts had decimated the trees so that there weren't any trees to climb up. We had to survive out there or we would perish. And we were at the very bottom of the food chain. Why? Because we had no speed. We couldn't outrun a jackrabbit. We weren't ferocious. We didn't have fangs and long nails. And so we weren't going to fight our way out of this thing. We had to de develop a skill, an adaptation, that would immediately allow us to survive. And that adaptation was the ability to think and to abstract. So now, with that ad adaptation, I could see a stick, not as a stick, but as a weapon and a spear. That moved me in a single moment from the bottom of the food chain to the top of the food chain. Our survival as a species depended upon abstract thought. Can you imagine the terror of being out on that plane before abstract thought? <laughs> okay, now listen carefully. That terror still runs through our veins. And when you choose to be quiet, that is the terror that will arise within you. We have not lost that. It has just been suppressed and repressed. And so when we start thinking about being quiet, we will often feel the anxiety of doing just that. It will start very low-toned. But as we start moving into it, it will become of higher pitch. And we're talking about terror. We're not talking about anxiety here. So that and the fact, and the fact that all of our meaning and purpose is infused in being a form. If you look at your life, if I look at my life, and we recount our accomplishments, what has given us meaning, you will find it all based in form. That, side by side with the terror of being quiet, you can see immediately why we choose to be noisy. Right? Plus, there is two million years of history of survival related to our continual chatter. So there's a lot up against, going up against us here. Okay, that does not mean by any, by any means of the imagination, that does not mean that it cannot be done. It just means that there's a lot of mind blockages, a lot of mind blocks along the way, a lot of things we have to deal with. It takes courage to do this work. It takes courage to even want to do it. But let's look at what we have here in the few minutes remaining, because this is very important. This, then, is the broad stroke work of your spiritual journey. And I just get it intellectually, if you would. It's 
very important to understand this. First of all, to understand that we are moving from form to the formless. But not so that we will be like a child where we have lost our functionality again. It's to be functionally sacred. To have the ability to navigate in the world, to know things, but not let the knowing take precedent over the wonder. To live at the zero point of functionality in the intersection of time and distance. So that we're moving in the world completely normally, and yet we never lose the certainty of our own wonder, of our own mystery. How we get there, extraordinarily important. Because there are, it's like there are so many different possibilities of how you arrange where you're going or what you perceive the direction of this journey is. And how you then use the strategies of your paradigm to try to transcend the paradigm into the sacred. But we use it within the strategies of our own paradigm. We use time and thoughts about distance. How far am I from enlightenment? How much more do I have to work towards it? All of those are within the paradigm of form. You can't use the paradigm of form to get to the, par- to f- get to the paradigm of the formless. You can't use the strategies of form to get to the formless. You can't use time and distance and hard work and effort and ambition to get to the formless. That won't go there. It goes deeper and more invasively and more focused on the very paradigm you're in. We have tried again and again throughout this retreat and will continue to give you reminders of that. Ambition will not take you there. Ambition will take you further into the world of form because it is derived from the logic of form. I'm here and I need to go there. And this is the distance I need to cover and this is the amount of time I need to do it. And with that logic, you are fast and frozen within that paradigm. But what about words like relaxation? Where does that take you? That's a release, not a holding. So you have to find the bridge to this thing. And the bridge to it is to do the very antithesis of what our paradigm suggests that we do. Instead of striving, we relax. Instead of a thinking it's outside of me, we know for the certainty that it is intrinsic to me. And therefore, there's no distance to cover. There is just something to release ourselves from. Now, something very interesting begins to happen. There is some law of science that says something like, I used to know this, but I'm having a blank. I call it a a senior moment. In which energy in any closed system remains constant. 
Okay? Now the mind, for this, for this analogy, is a closed system. If the mind uses its energy to invest in objects and thereby the arising of the subject, there's no energy available for the formless. It's all going into the consummation and proof and investment in objects and me as the knower of those objects. Now, when objects no longer entice in the same way, so I start withdrawing mental energy from the need for objects, that energy goes to the formless. It doesn't go away. It doesn't vanish. It goes to the formless. And you st- we start seeing interconnectedly because that's the vision, that's the perception from the formless. So it's not something we need to do. It's a different perception we need to have. And it happens naturally if we work the practice in proper alignment so that we're looking at the limitation of what we want. Yes, there's satisfaction in our desires, our needs, our material wealth, our gains. But what's the limitation? The Buddha says if you compare the value to the limitation of access and gain, you'll always see that the limitation outweighs the value. And therefore, you'll divest your energy from the continual need to acquire, and that energy will go where? It will go to the formless. The sacred will become known. And that happens in each one of us from time to time. As I mentioned, we can be out on the road, and we can just drop a sense of self-perspective for the moment. We can see a moment of wonder or beauty in a flower, and suddenly our heart opens, and we are within one of those 50% that knows life other and outside of the sense of me. Now, whether we want to be the 80% that wants to come back into the packaging, I don't know. But at least we will be exposed. And it happens without our, without our logic, without our strategizing it. Why? Because it can't happen within your strategizing it, since strategy is within the paradigm of form. It happens seemingly as a mistake because we have dropped the very ways that we are within form in that moment of awe or inspiration or heart opening. And there is a moment of the other paradigm coming right in at us in that moment. Because we've divested from objects, the need to have objects into the awe and mystery of an object, that invested energy then goes into the profound manifestation of the sacred. Each of us, each of us, each of us have that capacity. Each of us. Each of us. And we're this close. We just have to sense the proximity, sense how we get there, sense the direction we need to take. Arrest our usual conditioned response. 
of how to get there. Re-examine what it is that we want. And all of the techniques, all of the instructions are really instructions from the formless, not instructions within form. Relaxing, observing, allowing, releasing, surrendering. You can hear that forever the teachings have come, are oriented not towards creating or embellishing or cultivating, but towards just the opposite of that. Receiving, learning, understanding. Not the influential leaning forward, but the receptivity of life. And so with proper understanding, with proper direction, with proper, with a sincere heart, within a sincere heart, we start working in cooperation with the instructions because the longing of our heart wants to take us there. If we look for the longing, where we really long to go, you'll see it's to the formless. Not to the symbols of the form, not to the bowing of the Buddha, but to Buddhism itself, to being awake, to wakefulness. We don't stop with religiosity. That's still formation. We move into the Buddha. We abide in the Buddha. We have just gone through the birth of the nation. (laughs) I want to thank you all for your attention tonight. Let us sit quietly for a moment or two. So the formation of me keeps the sacred at bay. It's very interesting, you see. And quiet, quiet allows access. So how quiet do we want to be? How far do we want to be from it? If your heart is resolved, then the journey is very simple. If you want to be a meditator, like a general with a thousand ribbons on your chest, well, that's a different, that's a very different practice. Here we learn how to be simple. We learn how to be quiet. Add nothing to this moment.
add nothing to this moment. So there'll be a final.